The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Joining me on the line is Deadspin.com writer Kevin Draper. He wrote an excellent piece already forwarded over to the NBA player agents titled The NBA's Next Labor War is Here. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Um, so why should the general public care about this, how the sausage is made in the NBA collective bargaining agreement? Union membership in the private sector now stands at 6.6%. Aside from being a basketball fan who would miss the 2018 season, possibly, if the players opt out and there is a strike or and or lockout, um, what's, what's the significance to the general public? Yes, I mean, the, the, the biggest significance or the one that will affect the most people, the one you talked about, which is that if there is a prolonged uh, you know, labor stoppage in some way, uh, the basketball season will be affected. Um, but I think there's also, I mean, there's a lot of issues here that are similar to, to, to other unionization labor issues, and it's, uh, you have to be careful not to draw too many parallels and that you know, these aren't uh, uh, minimum wage McDonald's workers fighting or something. These are still highly paid athletes. Um, but they have a lot of the same issues that laborers in, in, other, uh, in other areas have, which is that they want to be fairly compensated for their labor. They want to have the ability to, to earn as much money as possible. Uh, they want to have some say over the conditions in which they are employed, you know, where, how they can practice, all these other things. Um, and so, you know, while it is, it is a millionaire's versus billionaire's fight, I think, it is generally uh, important that, that people have a say over how they work and, and make sure they can enjoy their job. Yeah. If a strike or a lockout occurs, do you think with the space that's created by Occupy Wall Street, hashtag Black Lives Matter, and ex-Clipper owner Darnold Sterling's plantation mentality but towards his former players, will put the public sentiment behind the players this time if there's a work stoppage? Uh, I think... I'm not sure. It's hard. I mean, the, the last time public sentiment was very, very heavily in the who cares, you guys are all making way more money than I am, so I just want to watch basketball. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the biggest challenge that the players' union has in a strike, and that it's possible that they could have a, a great argument, that they could show all these things, and the public will still go, who cares, we just want to watch basketball. Um, and so, yeah, I, mean, I, think there, I think there's a lot better chance that the union can, uh, can do better PR this time. The Donald Sterling thing especially uh, will help in showing, I mean, there's been all sorts of anecdotes about, about what he asked players to do and whatnot. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that's a real challenge, and I think there's a real possibility that they can't do it. That's just it's still seen as something above the heads of ordinary Americans. Yeah, does this upcoming potential work stoppage feel like it's due to making up last for last time for the players with the bad the mad bad management of like Billy Hunter for example who didn't feel like using the union's option to audit the books up to for up to five teams a year? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of it and that the players feel hey, there there were a lot of claims that the the league was losing money and so last time for the most part, we were the ones that sacrificed. Well, now there's a new TV contract where instead of earning $930 million a year, the league is earning about $2.6 billion a year, and the Clippers were sold for $2 billion. And so clearly uh, the, the value of NBA teams is going up and the amount of money they're making is going up. And so I think the players feel like, well, we gave back a lot this time, last time, so now that the, the league is on 
steady financial footing, it's our turn to, to go back to kind of where we were. Yeah, um, the NBA Players Union has a reputation of missing a few paychecks and then folding. Um, the South Carolina Park creators, when they had a writer strike a few years back, they kind of had the they had the proposition getting paid something is better than missing a paycheck completely in aggregate. Um, does that does that hold, or do you think NBA is going to actually uh, opt out and actually have a work stoppage and save money and um, and hold out for a longer period of time? So yeah, my prediction would be that there is that. The, the players' union does opt out of the contract, yeah. uh, but that is right. They always have uh, folded because at some point the guys that are making whatever the minimum in basketball is haven't saved up enough money, and they would rather earn a paycheck. Whereas the Kobe Bryant's of the world don't care because you know they earn plenty of paychecks, and so like the union would have to be messaging now with the agents and players that you need to start putting away money, you need to start preparing for. I think the other thing is is that maybe the union then doesn't they still opt out but don't uh, don't try to get everything they want. They try to only get a little bit so that the league goes, okay, we'll give into that uh, and there isn't a protracted battle because um, if there is one, at some point the owners are always going to win a protracted battle as we saw in the NHL. They blew up an entire season and I think it was 2004, 2005, maybe the year after. Uh, they blew up an entire season just to not have to give back more money. So if it really push comes to shove there, the players are always going to lose that battle. Yeah, just before we get to the actual context of what's in the CBA and how it might be changed, I did want to touch on something. You mentioned the smaller player, the smaller paychecks and the journeyman. As somebody that follows women's soccer, and I have friends that follow women's basketball, a lot of the uh, women's players, they actually have a, another club they play with in Europe or in Australia during the North Americans offseason. Is that something, an option that an NBA journeyman would have, like playing in Europe while the NBA is on strike? I think it's an option for some, but it's not a kind of wholesale option. And we saw this last time, too, um, when... I mean, there were NBA. It's kind of always been this idea that that European basketball will get good enough and they'll start being paid high enough. And we've seen from time to time, for instance, uh, Josh Childress left. Uh, I don't remember how many years ago to go play for Olympiacos in Greece, and it was like hailed as kind of the coming of basketball players getting paid good money in Europe. Uh, and that never really came to fruition. So yeah, there's going to be a few players that'll go over you know, to Turkey or to Spain or to Greece or whatever, and they can play there. Um, but there's also weird things with which NBA contracts and how European clubs have to respect them or not respect them. And there's just too many players that you can't have the 200 minimum wage players go over to Europe and all make money. So, yeah, 10, 15, 20 of them might be able to do it, uh, but I don't think it's like a wholesale way to get around avoiding paychecks by having them all go to Europe. Yeah. Um, how does the current CBA underestimate the new national television contract for the NBA? So the, the when the, the CBA was written in 2011, uh, it, it kind of assumes, um, it has these estimates for how the, the, the salary cap and all these things will go up every single year based on you know, revenue is going to grow a couple percent, et cetera, et cetera. But for whatever reasons that I am not exactly clear on, 
they don't factor in this big jump in the television revenue. So every year it goes up a couple percent, except what's going to happen uh, in 2016, 2017 is all of a sudden the, everything's going to jump up like crazy. And so there's all sorts of, uh, the revenue jumps up like crazy. So there's all sorts of weird complications that this creates where what's going to happen is all this money isn't going to go to the players through salaries, but since they're, uh, they have to get it through the CBA. It's going to go into escrow, and the owners are going to have to pay it to them kind of in a different way. Uh, and so because this money wasn't properly kind of – I mean, who knew exactly how much money the new TV contract would be, but because there wasn't any jump uh, assumed in the CBA because of it, it's kind of messing with the finances of the entire league. Yeah, in 2011, the main contention between the two parties was the percentage of basketball-related income, or BRI, each side was entitled to. You write that the new battle lines that will be drawn is what what constitutes the basketball-related income. So it's actually the size of the pie and not the portion. Um, How did the definition of basketball-related income and, quote, related parties get so outdated? I, it just, seems like that was never the main issue that came up during bargaining. The main issue, understandably, is always what percentage of the money does each side get? Because that's where, you know, each little percentage of basketball-related income is worth tens of and soon to be hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it seems like that was always the thing fought over and then some other things. And basketball-related income just never really got an update. And so if you look at the the 1995 collective bargaining agreement versus the 2011 collective bargaining agreement, the the biggest change or the the most meat is added to the section of things that do not constitute basketball-related income. So from the player's perspective, the biggest changes have been, here's a list of things that you are not going to get money from. Um, And so, yeah, I think it really speaks to the failures of players' union leadership, whether that's Billy Hunter the lawyers negotiating in the room, the players telling them what they care about. You know, I don't know, I wasn't in those rooms, so I don't know exactly who was saying what or arguing for what, but it speaks to their collective failure that basketball-related income definitions are basically the same as they were 20 years ago. Wow. Um, talk about some of the revenue-shifting shenanigans that can occur when two men, for example, own both the Barclays Center as well as the Brooklyn Nets, but somehow under the NBA's definition aren't related parties. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like the, the, the CBA was written um, in a world assuming that owners own teams, different people own arenas, different people own TV networks, different people own everything else, and then like any other business, everyone's trying to make the most amount of money, everyone negotiates, and everything turns out fine. Uh, and so there is, there is language to deal with related parties, but it, it just isn't adequate for kind of the size of the interrelated things we're talking about. And so, you know, the best example is the Knicks. They're owned by the same guy who owns the arena, who owns the television network that broadcasts them. And so if he wanted, and to be clear, I don't know exactly what is going on because the NBA doesn't release team audited or audited financials to me or pretty much anybody else. Um, But if he wanted, he could pay himself from his TV network $1 to broadcast NBA games and the players receive half of that, so they would receive $0.50 cents from that $1, when in actuality the rights are worth 
you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so there is some language in the CBA for how we deal with these conflicts and you bring in independent auditors and independent accountants to account for the value of certain things. Uh, but it also goes beyond that. There's, you know, teams own the, uh, the jet company that flies their players around. They own all these other kind of related services. And it just, I mean, as we see in pretty much all walks of business, there's a million ways if you get smart accountants in a room that they can shift numbers around and make things look like it's one thing when actually it's the other thing. And that kind of is the big, the big worry of the players that, that they're not seeing and tracking where all this money goes and some of it should be going to them that isn't. As an example, in, in your piece of how owners can shift money around, you cite a quote by Andrew uh, Zimelist, and Andrew gives you uh, a potential owner two choices. You have the, the owner could pay $2 million in rent and see 50, 50% of a projected $4 million in signage income or pay no rent and get no signage income. Both propositions break even, but with the latter agreement, um, it's not netting any uh, BRI for the players. As we talk about with Neil DeMoss on the show, most of these lease agreements are with cities and not merely another arm of the same country, or I'm sorry, the same company. Um, How do you account for this in the BRI definition in the collective bargaining agreement? So this is where, when there are related teams, I mean, so first of all, that the BRI has the specific language about how we deal with signage income. And so it's yeah. the players get this much of signage income, the teams get this much of signage income. Um, but this is where independent accountants, in theory, come into the process. So what would happen is the teams would say, you know, we, we sold our signage for this much, the arena sold the signage for this much money, um, and the players therefore get this much. And the players' union can either say, great, that seems right, and that everything is fine, or it can kind of get submitted to an independent accountant to, uh, to check it out, and they say, actually, the value of this should have been higher, so therefore the players should get more amount of money. And those processes are pretty heavily governed by, governed by confidentiality things, and so we don't really know yeah. when they've happened. So we don't know when the union has said, hey, there's a problem, we want an independent accountant to look at this. We don't know if the unions have agreed with the independent accountant or not, uh, it's all, yeah, pretty, pretty heavily um, obscured. And so we don't know the details of these things, which is why kind of a lot of the piece I write about, here are all the places where problems can occur, but it's really hard to tell when they have actually occurred or when there's actually been problems because, I mean, you have to be a forensic accountant with tons of time on your hands <laughs> yeah and you have to go through all all see every single teams like um you have to go through their lease agreement with each city that, or it, for the five owners that own their arena you have to go through that to figure out where the income's hiding right and then yeah and then you not even you need more than that right you need the team's financials yeah you need the financials of all the businesses that are related so like yeah it i mean it's it's you know, to some degree, you can say the players' union didn't really screw up because this is phenomenally difficult, and they, you know, need a hundred accountants to go through all this. Yeah. So, to some degree, I think you have to rely on trust a little bit. That kind of hopefully the players and the owners are in this thing together, where they are both trying to make money and both trying to put on basketball, and it behooves both parties not to try to screw each other out of money. But that trust only lasts so far, and. 
when you're talking billions of dollars, it's pretty easy to to see why either side would try to get more money wherever they could. Yeah, talk about the equity stakes in the regional sports networks that are lowering the amount of the total pie calculated in the current definition of basketball-related income. Yeah, so in the in the basketball-related income section for kind of local TV rights, uh, it talks about right, the players get half of the money earned from local TV. So, you know, in, in L.A., you have the Time Warner is paying uh, the Lakers something like $150 million a year to broadcast their games. So the players get $75 million of this, and the owner of the Lakers, he's $75 million of this. But kind of one of the things we're seeing lately is, especially in baseball, uh, but it's also in basketball as well, is when teams agree to rights deals, they're not just getting a set amount of money every year to, to let uh, a network broadcast their games. They're also getting some sort of equity stake or some sort of uh, yeah, ownership stake in in that TV network. Um, and so recently it happened with the Celtics, where the Celtics are getting paid something like $35 million a year to have their games broadcast. But they also got a 20% ownership stake in Comcast Sportsnet New England. And, and the CBA doesn't deal with equity stakes well. There's a page in there about them. Um, but... You know, things like if it's a publicly traded company, we count the equity as the value of the company. Um, but that means that if, you know, Comcast Sports in New England, which isn't a publicly traded company, but if it were, um, if it increases, if it gains a lot of value, the owners get all of the value there and the players don't. Um, and similarly, we saw in Houston, when these things go bad, and in Houston, the Rockets weren't paid their rights fees for about a year and a half, partially because the Rockets were owners in this thing. Uh, the players lose money because they didn't get paid the rights fees. And so there's kind of tremendous upside in equity arrangements for the owners uh, and not really any upside for the players, and there's downside for the players. And so this is one of the things they would like to renegotiate the language there to make it a lot more clear how equity stakes work and make sure that players benefit from them if owners do as well. Yeah, because the CSN Comcast thing that actually ended up in bankruptcy court, and so if they get a fraction of what the the Rockets are actually owed, it's going to be a miracle. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, in bankruptcy court right now, the Rockets say they're owed something like $101 million, and it isn't clear exactly how much of that is rights payments and how much of that is uh, other things, but the majority of it is rights payments. So there's something, $80, $90 million the Rockets should have been paid over the last year and a half, and therefore $45 million or $40 million of that should have gone to the players. But since they weren't paid it, the Rockets lose out. They're losing out on half that money, but the players are also losing out on half that money. Uh, and, yeah, like you said, it's in bankruptcy court. Who knows how it will actually get resolved, but the chances that they get the full $80, $90 million is pretty much none. What has been the reaction to your piece on Deadspin? Uh, it's been pretty good. More people read it than I expected, and that, you know, this is 4,000 words on, like, labor negotiation and contracts and mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, it's not the most easily digestible thing. Um, but the kind of cooler thing that I thought was that was that it people seem to recognize that kind of it's, it was a big deal in, in what it says for what's going to happen in, in 2017 and 2016, and that uh, the NBA released this long statement condemning uh, the piece and saying it had multiple inaccuracies and all that. And then on the other side, the NBA Players Union sent it out 
to agents because, uh, you know, I broke the news in there that the NBA Players Union is going to start auditing five teams every year um, as they are allowed to. And the Players Union wanted the agents for the players to know this. And so they sent out the piece to them so they could read it. Um, and so I think generally it's, it's been a lot, a lot more positive and it's kind of been a little bit bigger of a deal than I ever expected anybody to care about labor negotiations. Um, you named some of the teams that you thought that were going to get audited. I think the Mavericks are on the list and a couple others. What, what made you think that those Pacific teams are going to get audited by the union? So I think generally the union is going to try to audit teams that either make a ton of money or have a lot of related parties um, involved with them or both. So, yeah, so the Knicks are on the list because they're one of the richest teams and they have all these related party problems. Same with the Nets. Uh, The Mavericks, once again, are a rich team with a lot of interconnected things. I'm guessing the Nuggets, the Denver Nuggets, even though they're not rich, Stan Kroenke owns um, the arena, he owns the network, he owns the team. Um, and then the fifth team, I don't even remember who I said. Oh, the uh, Lakers. The Rockets. But the La- the, yeah, or the Lakers are a possibility also because they're one of the very rich teams. And so, yeah, so the kind of the idea being if there's not a lot of related parties going on, there's not any way the owners really have to shift the money. And then if they're a one of the poorer teams in the league, which is all relative, none of them are poor, but one of the poorer teams in the league, they also don't have as much revenue to have hidden or to have done something. And so, yeah, you'd expect them to go after the high-revenue, conflicted teams, but we won't actually know until something like two and a half months from now, I think, or maybe two months from now um, when, it has to get a, when they have to tell the league who they're auditing. Since you, they can do this once a year, would you audit one of the poorer teams in the league, like I don't know, the Minnesota Timberwolves or something, just so when the you know commissioner says, "Oh, you know, it's one third of your little league is losing money," you can come back and say, "No, no, they're not." Yeah, my guess is that that is what's going to happen next year. In that, uh, so we have this audit right now, which is going to happen during the summer of 2015. And then they'll have another opportunity to do five more teams, which they could do the same five or they could do different five uh, in the summer of 2016. And, and they, they, neither side can opt out of the current uh, collective bargaining agreement until later that winter in 2016. Mm-hmm. So I would guess that for this first round, they are going after the rich teams to try to identify as many different uh, revenue sources that could be hidden or something like that. And then in the summer of 2016, if they're pretty sure that they're going to that a lockout or a strike will happen, or that they're going to opt out of the collective bargaining agreement, that's when they might be a little more strategic like that, right? And decide, yeah, these are the teams that are supposedly the ones losing money. So let's go find out if that claim is actually true, um, or any other things like that. Um, I'm guessing summer 2016 would be the time to go after those teams. Yeah. Um, any thoughts you want to leave off with? Not many thoughts. I just, yeah, I think this stuff, uh, it's kind of important in a way that, um, in that labor negotiations never capture the interest of the American public. Like, just, it's not something that excites them. It's not something that most people care about. And so, you know, like, to some degree, this is basketball, which is just entertainment, and it doesn't have a, you know, material impact on our lives. And so to some degree, to me, right, this isn't important. 
but also I think it's really important in that kind of this is a place where you can get people understanding labor issues, you can get people understanding ownership issues, you can get people understand collective bargaining and unionization. Like it's kind of a way to to kind of backdoor in conversations that are important that we have without people kind of realizing they're having them. So that's that's one of the reasons I like writing about this stuff uh, is because it's it interests me and it also has the ability to interest other people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my guest is in Kevin Draper. He wrote an excellent piece on Deadspin.com called "The Next uh, NBA's Next Labor War Is Already Here." Already here. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for making time first off, and thanks for being on the show this morning. 